0: hello everyone welcome back for another week of growing with my fellow growers i'm your host jack greenstock joined as always by an amazing panel i'm gonna pass it over first this week as i normally do to spartan grown
1: thanks jack i'm spartan grown you can find me on instagram at spartan grown all one word no spaces otherwise uh look for me at spartan grown spartan grown at (laughs) gmail.com just send me an email it's probably the best way to get a hold of me to guarantee it's going to get to me good stuff keeping it
0: simple i like that next up we got dr mj hey
2: guys dr mj coco from coco um yeah i'm excited for the show i missed it last week so i'm excited to be back and uh happy to be here
0: happy to have you and last and certainly not least of the panelists who are with us currently is brandon russ
3: welcome back what's going on guys how's everybody doing today uh, i'm doing good um if anybody is listening and they are not familiar with who I am, I'm Brandon Rust. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at rustrust.brandon. You can also check out the website. We relaunched the website now. It's all super awesome, functional, looks really great. And uh, you can check that out. And uh, yeah, happy to be here.
0: Good stuff. We're happy to have you back. Last week, we talked a little bit about how to track and reduce costs in your grow, but I know you and Doc, uh, we're not here, Brandon. So I guess I could kick it to uh, first, Doc, and uh, maybe you could touch base just a little bit on, uh, Do you? I asked everybody this last week, but do you currently track costs in your grow? And if so, uh, what are some of the methods you use to go about doing so? And uh, are you conscious of trying to reduce costs or keep costs flat, et cetera? Uh, So I'll pass it over to Doc.
2: Yeah, certainly I'm conscious of costs. I don't I don't do a good job. I, I buy things in sort of quantities that I don't usually use in a single grow. Um and so they stretch over a number of grows in sort of my home operation. Um so I no longer, you know, track the cost of each grow. I kind of think about costs differently, but certainly. When I think about like adding something, you know, to my nutrient regime, for example, or the things that I even run now, I I think carefully about sort of the the cost benefit on them. Um, I, I think about that a lot in different aspects of technology. Oftentimes, you know, you have to invest in, some piece of technology to make the long-term operating cost of your grow lower so you can basically reduce costs you got to spend something to save something in the long run um but other times we can you know get carried away with that and and buy something because we think it's going to save but we'll never recoup those costs because it's not really um generating enough savings through time so i think about all of that I, i think it's you know, to try to set up an an efficient grow and to, to be doing things, you know, not just for myself, but for a lot of people that want to follow me that aren't wasteful and aren't making people, you know, invest a lot of money in things that they don't need.
0: Um, Do you consider labor costs? I know in the past we've talked about, like, I think you, if I'm quoting you directly, I think you said, I don't pay myself, but if you're looking at like cost per gram, and if you were going to come at it from a consulting perspective where you're going to consider labor yeah, that's
2: that's a huge difference in the the consulting side of it labor is one of the biggest costs when you're dealing with commercial production um and it, it's not so the costs that home growers tend to be more sensitive to are the specific input costs and technology costs so when we have to buy a light or buy a tent or when we have to, you know, buy more nutrients or more growing media at every cycle or something like that. Um, In so that electric the growers bill. that become most sensitive to those, the sort of how much each run costs are growers that have to, you know, buy, have a lot of those recurring costs that are sort of run specific, like maybe they buy media each time, um, a specific amount of nutrients each time or something like that.
0: Seeds um, even with like autoflowers. Yeah, it's every run.
2: Yeah, um, in commercial side, absolutely. We got to think about all that stuff, too. Um, it, you, you think about the economics in a very different way on sort of both sides. See, home growers also, you know, in my imagination, I know a lot of people actually are sort of selling some portion of their home harvest. But we often grow for other reasons besides just the market value of the crop. So our crop is valuable to us for reasons beyond just sort of its exchange rate, like what we could buy it for on the street or in the, the dispensary or whatever. Um, so on on that value side of it, you know, it's hard to put a specific value, and oftentimes just putting the the market value. Yeah, undercounts what really matters to us. Uh, on the other side, home growers, you know, we we invest our labor very differently than a commercial farm does because we're peasants. So we invest our own labor, and it's basically surplus labor that we're not doing something else with. Um, usually, we come home from like a job or whatever, and we're doing this in the evenings so or the mornings or on our free time or something like that. It even becomes a hobby. Um, so investing more time, you know, often makes sense be, if it's going to save you some money. So a good example of that is buffering your own cocoa in in sort of my style of growing. Um, if you want to save time, there's some pretty good prepared products out there. Um, but they're you know, more money if you're willing to invest your own time and, you know, like better part of a day of work on it then you can get a much cheaper product and in the end you'll end up with sort of the same quality so you know different growers are going to have different decisions there for some it's worth it to pay a little bit more to save all that time to others it's definitely going to be worth it to like spend the afternoon doing their own cocoa and you know save 50 bucks
0: it's similar to uh, building your own soil versus bet buying a soil that's essentially pre-mixed and pre-amended like you could get a water only soil that has everything you need like from build a soil the 3.0 blend or something like that or you could buy sphagnum peat moss and then each individual input and then go through and mix up your own soil and that that reminds me a lot of the uh, kind of buffering your own cocoa thing and also realizing that it does come down to I think a resource management thing where a lot of peasant farmers have. Time as a resource that's in somewhat abundance, and so like you're saying, like if we get off of a job and we come home, we might have hours that we're not getting paid anyway. So like we can spend that time in the grow, and it's not a big you know uh, sacrifice for us. But um, some people don't have the time available, so they'll go and buy the pre-buffered cocoa and they'll go and buy the premixed soil and and have as much time outside of the garden as possible to do their other things that they need to do. So. Those are good considerations. Yeah, for it, it all
2: depends on how you kind of approach those tasks. For some people, you know, <laughs> my niece was like five years old when I did the the buffering cocoa video. And she thought that that just looked like so much fun to be like, you know, playing with this, like, I don't know, looked like dirt or something. It just looked like a lot of fun to her. So, you know, if you're like that, then Go buffer your own cocoa too. It depends on kind of how you, you know, personally think about the level of what we call drudgery that's involved in these different types of labor. There's another example that I want to come up with that I want to talk about here though, in terms of, you know, economizing on your grow. And this is one I've been thinking about because of a video I'm working on. Um, Do you save money now? And end up having to, you know, to buy less efficient technology, which is going to basically mean that you're running more power. So you save you know, a couple hundred dollars off the cost of your light, for example. Um, and you'd still be able to get as much light, but the consequence would be you're going to be running more power. Um, spending more sort of that way. And... I've been thinking a lot about how different people are likely to kind of economize on those types of decisions. I mean, I realize that some people need to, you know, absolutely lower their upfront costs as much as possible. Um, but at what point does it kind of become worth it to make those kinds of decisions too? So, you know, oftentimes when you're looking to save money on technology like that, Mm, it may cost you in certain ways um, in the long run, and maybe that's still worth it, but it, it's good to kind of think through some of those decisions or to be aware of, of how costs play out over different time frames.
0: We had an example last week on the show, uh, Spartan brought up, of running an LED light with a specific heater, like a modern, efficient heater would be more productive probably if like money wasn't the option right if you had the money to invest in all the best equipment possible you're going to get the best led light and then the best heater if you're in a place where it gets cold enough that you want to keep the heat in the proper range Uh, and i kind of said like some people would approach it by you know running an extra thousand watts of hid whether it's you know three 315 cmhs and or a thousand watt um, hps but Ultimately. In actual
2: practice, though, Jack, you have to have the heater anyways in those situations. I mean, you think that you're you're sort of saving something, but the lights only do the heat for you when the lights are on. Um, and in a lot of sort of climate management systems, you end up having to have heat of some sort available when the lights are off. So you know, having more efficient light, you already have a heater probably in it in that type of a grow it's absolutely better to have it as a separate appliance that you can control independently, right? That it's not just like you get both or neither, but you could get one or the other or both. I mean, that's absolutely better.
0: Yeah. More control is ideal and uh more efficient technology. I mean, like heat pump uh, electric heaters now are really efficient, but also um, even some older technology can still be effective. Like the radiant heaters that heat up a metal type, like, actual radiator and then it radiates off the heat even when it's not on and uh pulling electrical current so there's a lot of options there and it just comes down to dialing in what works best for the environment and uh you know yeah. what's most efficient and available to that individual grower so uh I do want to uh pass it over to Brandon Rust and see if you have any thoughts on the uh well first do you currently track input cost of your grow i know a lot of your grows are commercial and you do a lot of consulting um, on the home growth side of things, do you track your costs and, or uh, on the consulting side of things in the commercial scale, I'm imagining that they're tracking costs there. So how do you go about tracking costs and uh, attempting to reduce them if possible?
3: So on a business side, you should be running, you should be having, you know, someone have like a, uh, a bookkeeper accountant, someone does your payroll or your reporting, And if you're running everything like, you know, a regular business, which most, most do, um, you know, it's all going through, you know, like a, like a program, like QuickBooks or through, like you can see your sales through metric and there's all different types of integration when it comes to looking at a business and like what your profit and loss is and the categories of what your expenses are. So, you know, every business should have the ability to do itemized statements, profit and loss, and then be able to see, okay, this is what I spent on labor. This is what we paid for our electricity and our bill or our bills, what we paid for our rent, what we paid for supply. Um, That's kind of just part of having a good business. Like uh, the foundations of a good business, and so I don't know, if you don't have that, uh, well, you're probably in for a rocky, uh, rocky road uh, because it's really essential to be able to maintain, uh, you know, analytics and know what's happening within your business. If you can't do that, you're doing something wrong. So,
0: and for tax um, reasons, I mean, there's a lot of potential losses if you're not tracking those costs because there's potential write-offs deductions Etc uh, and losses that you can itemize and, and you know report so making sure that you're having good bookkeeping is is very important and knowing where the money goes I think if something's measured it can be improved and if something's measured then you know exactly where every single dollar is going and it's like oh our electrical cost is our largest cost you know we're kind of expecting that as an indoor grow but maybe how can we reduce that or Work to uh, cut it back and things like that. So I, I totally That's agree with you there, Brendan.
3: An item in my sheet of This is what. This is how much money we brought in. Let's say if somebody were to track over a year, this is what we brought in. This is what you know for sale. This was our labor. This is our electric. This was our rent. This was our you know nutrients. You know all that stuff should be items. That way you can go and look through and see like, oh hey, we spent way too much money on power. We spent way too much money on labor. How do we decrease this oh we can switch out leds as well and then you look at the cost versus your roi you know
0: do you take a similar approach at all on your home grow or like um maybe on the bokashi earthworks side of things where it's not directly cannabis uh business but like uh similar and tracking costs to, and
1: reducing
3: to reduce costs well, I was uh here's a really good example when we get you know all of our uh you make We have all the humane. We have to bottle all Now, I've met a company that essentially will, see, we'll bottle it, right? We'll put the label on it and and everything. So I have to buy the label. I have to have someone put the label on it. And I have to have someone fill that bottle. Now, there's companies that will do packaging and everything and essentially wrap everything up. And then I get it instead. You know, so I there are people who provide different services like bottling, packaging, where you could outsource. For instance, if I'm making, you know, 275 gallon um, totes of Micro plus, now I take, I, instead of having someone package that all up into liters, half gallons, gallon, and five gallon uh, containers, having to label that. I could just, you know, send it to the company. They'll do all the bottling, package it all up, wrap it up on a pallet, and it's good to go. No, if the cost is, you know, you just have to look at the cost. What does it cost for one bottle and the label? Well, the label might cost you maybe twenty-five cents, like and a bottle might cost you, let's say, a dollar fifty. So you're at a dollar seventy-five just for the bottle and the label okay now what is it going to cost you to have that packaged up if, if he can package 60 an hour that means it costs you um you know however much he's getting paid you yeah, know, 20 bucks an him. hour you know you know whatever it is and then so you look at that oh and then if these people are saying hey we can package this all up for a dollar 27 with the bottle the label And then it's $15 per pallet for, you know, whatever for the fee or whatever, something like that, you know, and you just have to see what the cost is. Doing those types of things can help improve Um, another cost way of like, okay, so we have multiple shipping options through USPS, right? And, And there's also, if things are, under 50 pounds, sometimes it's cheaper to go with UPS. So, sometimes what we'll have to do is play around with the shipping method to see which is the best rate for us because we don't want to have to pay more on shipping if it's not necessary. You Good know? to know and
0: on the consumer end, too. I mean, a lot of uh, people out there do offer multiple options, and some people might, uh, you know, order something above or below a certain poundage to, you know, trying to avoid certain shipping costs. I know Build-A-Soil has actually got a pretty decent setup. A lot of their stuff is free shipping and they're large enough at this point where I think they get certain special hookups and things like that. But that's certainly when you're buying stuff online, shipping costs is a big consideration.
3: We have free shipping on the Bokashi Earthworks website. And then what we'll also have is a wholesale part. So if you're approved as a wholesale customer, you can go on there and order You know bulk soils, bulk uh, amendments. You know like fifty pound bags. And what it will do is it'll calculate LTL, which is less than freight shipping, and it'll give you you know that it's basically shipping by the pallet, and and it'll give you a a rate associated with that. So, um, it's it's gonna be fully integrated. We have like a affiliate program set up now, and pretty cool. Just did a seed drop
0: i saw that the inbred limes limerilla
3: yeah the inbred limes man it's a good one
0: looks fire man i'm uh, excited for you i know you've been working on the limerilla crosses for a long long time and you've got a few really good selections that are big terpene producers
1: so uh i'm sure people are gonna I'm going to be growing and it's very limey i i really enjoyed it yeah i've got some good i've
3: got some pretty funky stuff going on in there uh lots of lots of unique terpene profile stuff that you don't see uh, often things that are hard to place too if you don't know like you know what it is because i have sweet perfume almost for breezy like ocean breeze for breeze with lime peel and sour there's all kinds of stuff in the limarilla sometimes it, it, it if you let it age a little bit longer it, uh, I think, what happens is some of those really heavy monoterpenes kind of dissipate, and you're left with kind of more chocolatey notes.
1: Oh wow!
0: Some throwbacks to the GG4, probably in the lineage, way, way back. But that's a uh, really interesting to hear. I saw you were also put like soapy and hazy notes in uh, one of your Instagram posts recently. No cool stuff for
3: sure. Not, not the terpene profile. I said if you're a fan of sours and hazes, it's because of the high on it. Some people don't don't like smoking Lomarilla because it makes them too anxious or they get too nervous because it's like super, it's a super mental high. It's super. More
0: racy, like uplifting, like, you know, sativa-esque highs. A lot of people I think would think of that as. Really cool stuff. I'm uh, sure a lot of people are going to be excited to Get those and start growing them i've got some related genetics from you i'm probably going to get grown here pretty soon i do uh recall before the show uh spartan grown made me aware of something that i hadn't heard about yet but it, it seems like the ncaa is potentially lifting or already lifted cannabis drug tests from the performance enhancing drug uh routine so maybe spartan could tell us a little bit more about that and uh, we could change
1: pace a little bit here thanks jack yeah i I only read a little article on it, so I am not even that versed on it, but it, it raised my eyebrows to see that it was a recommendation from an NCAA body to uh, completely drop the performance enhancing drug test for cannabis. Now, I don't know if that includes all tests for cannabis, but the specific the specific test that was where they were considering it a performance enhancing drug. And, why I raised my eyebrows a little bit was because it was from um, just an NCAA body. So that would govern all of the sports, not just one particular sport. Um, I think that's a move in the right direction and, and uh, a really surprised to see it coming from, from the NCAA before the federal government. But here we see, here we see it.
2: Is it actually a final rule or is it just a proposal at this point? Uh,
1: I have to go back to I'll do a little quick Google search to see if I can find that article. Yeah, but I saw
2: something about it. The way
1: like I was it. reading it, it was like uh, they were putting it into motion to do it. So, like, it hadn't happened yet. Like, they didn't sign it on the dot line, but they were going to do it kind of a thing. Oh, I'm interested right. to
2: read into that.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of stuff that dates back to January where they're
0: kind of proposing it. So, I think it might be in the works or maybe coming soon. I can't find anything more recent than that. Um, interesting. I do think that's an interesting sort of discussion because I personally feel like for certain sports, cannabis might be performance enhancing, like jujitsu, surfing, or basketball, but in like MMA or boxing, I think it would not be a performance enhancer because reaction time I do think is delayed. Um, But anecdotally, the most points I ever scored in a basketball game was 22 points. And that was like 15 more than any other game. that I ever played and I never smoked otherwise like before games and one game my buddy and I just decided to fucking go on a little route before fucking take a little toothpick size joint and fucking toked on it and we were lightweights at the time so I was fucking nice and baked but I think I only missed one shot that game and like I said scored way more than I typically would and even in practice the reason I did it was the same guy we would get high before Saturday morning practice and we'd fuck everybody up like I was and I'm not a shooter but like I would just make a lot more shots when I was high so I think maybe for me personally, at least it improved my performance. Maybe it was like reducing anxiety or or giving me some sort of focus or something like that, getting into the flow state, but I don't think it would make me like,
2: should those be considered performance enhancing drugs? Should anti-anxiety medication be performance enhancing and be banned in in certain sports? Um, You know, what, what is really sort of the the effect that we're trying to control athletes to be able to use medicine for well it's um,
0: certainly not your tr- traditional performance enhancing drug like
1: uh, uh about steroids or sort of just, any, they talked about in professional just... golf a while
2: ago about using like beta blockers and anti-anxiety medicine to like <laughs> calm your nerves to be able to to do well and that that should be banned um I'm, i don't actually i just remember hearing that debate i don't know whatever came of it there but
1: would argue that uh if that little bit of drug interaction is is enough to make you win then i mean just step up your game i mean if you're gonna argue over somebody taking a fucking aspirin or taking a toke and they beat you and you gotta find that to be the reason you lost the, the The line, there is no for me. There's no line. I don't care if you do a line of cocaine. I don't care.
2: Steroids before the competition too. Fine, that's That's cool. As long as it's
1: available to everybody, I'm fine with that. Yes.
2: Okay. I think certain
0: leagues should allow it, and certain leagues should test for it. Like if if they want to have the baseball league where guys are fucking hitting home runs like Barry Bonds and Sammy Sosa when I was a kid, fucking blasting them out of the arena
3: into the like
0: bay.
2: I mean, I hate to get on a soapbox, but that just encourages people to make decisions that destroy If they
3: legalize steroids for sports, sports would be way more interesting. But people, (laughs) I would
0: agree agree with Doc. The health of people is going to plummet because people will try and use it. I know kids that already did this, though, Doc. I was in high school. I played football. I knew kids that were fat that took steroids because they didn't work out hard enough. They thought it was going to make them jacked. And they started fucking pumping roids because they thought they were going to go to the league or get an NCAA scholarship. Like a lot of their peers were even without steroids. Maybe they're more genetically gifted. Maybe they had a better coach from a younger age. Um, there's a book called uh, outliers. Malcolm Gladwell specifically observed this in several sports hockey in Canada. For example, if you were born within a certain date, because you were like eight to 10 months older than everybody else in the peak years, all your coaches gave you more attention. You were a little taller, a little faster, a little stronger. So All the pros come from like a three-month period in Canada because that's the date that cuts off for the kids at the schools. And when your 11-year-old is playing against the 10-year-old, the 11-year-old has a huge advantage. So stuff like that sometimes out of people's control plays a major factor into whether or not they're going to have a chance at all. So I agree. It's dangerous to potentially push people towards these drugs that are extremely damaging towards the body.
2: Yeah, it's really, I would argue, immoral to create situations where you're going to make highly paid jobs as long as people do things that are physically damaging to their bodies in the long run in order to they be able to accept those jobs and we're just sort of teasing ourselves if we say it's anything other than that if you make
1: but do you think those kinds of is opportunities available damaging?
2: in sports leagues? You're basically saying, we'll pay you a lot of money if you take this stuff that damages your body in the line. I
0: don't think cam- cannabis is damaging, but at the same time, I, also no, I don't people know. Will damage
2: I'm not talking about cannabis. I asked where the, the line drug. was. So I was like, at some yeah. point, there's a line there where I don't think.
1: Well, for sure. I don't think you want to cause harm. But like boxing and, and football are
0: going to damage your body even without performance enhancing drugs i played football my whole life growing up i've had yeah. broken every finger in both my hands my spine got fucked up my brain got fucked up multiple concussions no performance enhancing drugs ever taken by me maybe some of the people i was playing against for sure but it wasn't because of that that i had the injuries it's the nature of the sport it's a violent uh injury
1: prone game so it's just yeah part yeah, for the course i guess definitely
2: another issue yeah i
1: did Difficult, find but... a little more clarity on that uh and it's kind of what we were thinking and it says on January 16, 2023, the NCAA Committee on Competitive Safeguards and Medical Aspects of Sports, CSMAS, rep- recommended dropping cannabis testing for student-athletes. The committee also recommended shifting focus to testing for performance-enhancing drugs and approaching cannabis similarly to alcohol with a focus on educating student-athletes about the health risk of marijuana use rather than punitive measures. The CSMAS recommendation is a significant step towards changing the NCAA's policy on cannabis. However, the recommendation is not yet official. It must first be approved by the NCAA Board of Governors and then by all three NCAA divisions, one, two, and three. If it's approved, it is expected to go into effect for the 2023-2024 athletic season. This means that student athletes would no longer be suspended or disqualified for testing positive for cannabis unless they are impaired or under the influence while competing. So you still wouldn't be able to consume it while you're competing. Interesting, I think it comes like more from- a game
2: uh, or during the season?
1: During the game, seemed, well- You can't even know, have more than a guessing.
2: cup of coffee in the
0: NCAA. If you take a five hour energy or two, like my, I was in the NAIA running track, my buddy would take like three, five hour energies before he high jumped, because he felt it made him more alert of where his body position was to help him get over the bar and just give him a little bit more edge or whatever. So they do drug tests for like caffeine even if you take too much of it
1: before an event. So they have their limits and things like that. I would think cannabis would really be strong after a sporting event, just for the recovery aspect and the anti-inflammation. And I think that's where I would really be. I think that's where it gives you an edge. If it gives you an edge is that you recover faster, you can practice harder, and then you can get back in the game again.
0: That's where I think they should push though, because from a damage reduction perspective, a lot of these guys, my very good friend got a double hernia removal surgery. He was a college football player. He ended up getting addicted to opioids, and he just passed last year, this this year actually on his birthday, from overdose. So it's a all too common tragedy that happens to way too many athletes that are told you're not allowed to have this uh, much safer, healthier drug that's not going to have overdose potential and has lower addiction potential.
2: Right, and it's not going to make you stronger, faster, or like you know better. It might make you more calm. I mean, I'm thinking of a whole number of of sports that I would definitely want to get high before I'd play because like if I wasn't high, I don't think I would do as well. Um, Or creative. Just from being like nervous or whatever, not like relaxed enough or, or, and I can see, but that's like a serious question. I don't, it, it doesn't feel like that's necessarily an unfair advantage in the way that something that made you, you know, bigger, stronger, faster would um but and it, it, with all of those things if you make it legal for some then it's going to put pressure on people that really don't want to also to sort of have to toe that line if they want to remain competitive I, I don't think that that's the case with cannabis like at, at all it might help recoveries or do other things like that um but that's where i think i would draw the line is it going to make you sort of bigger stronger faster in in the competition that you're doing because if it is even if we all think like it's no big deal it's going to put pressure on everybody that wants to compete at that to have to sort of toe that line and and take whatever substance is making people bigger stronger and faster at it
0: just like bicycling we saw with Lance Armstrong it wasn't just him it was numbers 1 through 13 all tested positive for some sort of doping that you know they all pushed to a certain thing and i actually saw some doctors say that like the tour de france might actually be safer if you're doping because it's such a fucking strenuous thing on your body so it was probably, you know, for the but better like for some of those guys but...
2: or whatever, the stuff that can make your heart explode. So, like, I mean, yeah, there, there's different ways like doping, doping, where you just re-inject your own red blood cells to have a higher concentration of, of sort of oxygen carrying capacity. Um, you know, there's not a lot of long term. It's not even a drug. It's just like your own blood. but yeah,
0: yeah, and then there's like human growth hormone and, and other. It's a yeah. whole weird, dark sort of side of, of sports and in health. Um, I will say the NFL during the 2021 season allowed players to now only require to be tested for marijuana. Their words, not mine, once per year at the start of training camp. And even if they fail the test, they're only subject to a fine, but not the lengthy suspension that they faced in the past. And a lot of NFL athletes have come out and said, They're very happy with these changes because now that they can use it, CBD, even specifically just CBD for recovery um, to help them with a lot of their injuries and things like that. So I'm happy to see that a lot of these sports organizations are becoming more open-minded. They sort of do move the needle a little bit with people's public opinion. A lot of these people watch these shows and (laughs) it's something that they look forward to every year, month, week, whatever it is. Um, And a lot of those people become sort of the role models in one way or another for kids or even adults. They look to these people and uh, want their perspectives. And as they continue to change and be more open-minded about cannabis, I think that's going to continue to push good things moving forward.
1: There's good data coming out of a lot of these states like Colorado and California, a lot of them that have been, you know, in the, in the freedom model for a while where people could freely go and get it. And they're seeing things like trends where like healthcare, healthcare claims are going down. There's less people going to the doctor. They're seeing there's not the big uptick in accidents that the fear mongering before all of the laws and passes were, you know, was, they're not seeing uh, those issues that they thought they would see or so crime. Of these things are just data points that we can then take to places like Michigan, where I think they can still improve things. And I can say, look at this. This is what's been going on. What do you mean? You're What, what do you mean when you say these things? Here's data that proves otherwise of the things that you're saying publicly you know, at least get your facts straight. And that's, it feels so good to have that kind of, that kind of ammo in your pocket, you know?
0: I just saw on Capitol Hill, um, the guy's last name is Gates. He was, and I'm not a big political person, so people are probably going to, some people love him, some people hate him, but he was fucking going after the head of the DEA or the FDA talking about how cannabis is so safe and how just what you were saying, Spartan, all these stats from all these States that legalized crimes gone down, uh, you know, injuries and other like you know all these other positive stats around cannabis from all the states that have legalized yet we still have it in schedule one And he was actually pushing for complete removal from the schedules and making it like alcohol tobacco which uh i think could be a positive change obviously there's been a lot of discussion about the potential for moving to schedule three um which i think has its own set of issues i believe that comes with only like essentially pharmaceutical providers will be able to manufacture and distribute schedule three drugs as is currently the case for other schedule three drugs. So maybe we could go into that side of the discussion as well of, uh, what do you guys think about this current this discussion of going to schedule three or pushing for the removal of scheduling in general? I guess I'll pass it to doc first. If you have any thoughts.
2: I mean, the, the, Drug schedules were created as one of the the principal acts of Richard Nixon's war on drugs in the early 70s. Um, You're gonna have to convince me that they serve some legitimate purpose because I think the whole scheduling thing is, is, yeah, it's not a good way to regulate any of the drugs. Um, It's never even aligned with what they said it should align with. Um, And things get placed in different places seems much more for political reasons or for specific sort of political problems that, that arise, rather than some sort of coherent plan for addressing how nixon called like the scourge of society i don't think we think about it that way anymore so it's time for us to revisit the entire thing so yeah i'm in the the camp of like deschedule. schedule um i i mean i'm also not going to let the the perfect be the enemy of the hell of a lot better than it is right now so sure make improvements but like I don't know if you spend more than 10 minutes looking into the, the drug schedules, you're going to want to just throw the whole thing out the window too.
0: I think that's fair. And even uh, our current president back in the nineties, the crime bill, he was like a big three strike guy. And uh, ironically enough, crack cocaine was one of the things he pushed against, but uh, it, it is unfortunate. I think all of it, I would agree. Um, we're like, typically we, we look at drug addiction historically as uh, a criminal issue and I think a lot of people are realizing more it's a sort of mental health issue and a societal uh, health circumstance issue so instead of you know locking people up and having recidivism having them be rehabilitated in in treatment centers I think a lot of the time can work but at the same time uh, I'm sort of uh, on the receiving end of when it goes awry like one of my neighbors has mental health issues is also abusing drugs and is also lashing out on the entire neighborhood and has abused the bail system. I've vandalized my vehicle, bailed out multiple times on the same day, uh, violating restraining orders and just not giving a fuck. And the Uh, sheriffs are kind of like hands tied. They're like, unless you have a restraining order, we can't do anything. Even if you do, we can just, you know, lock them up and then they bail out. And you got to wait until your case comes around and it's difficult.
2: So like in the the 70s, 80s and most of the 90s, they would blame drugs for everything in that person and damn drugs and lock them up. Right. Um, In the 2000s, we started to just slowly drift towards like thinking about that in terms of mental health issues, Um, but still kind of blaming the individual has this sort of problem um we don't tend to look at at those things from the system's perspective of you know even though it's really obvious I I use this example oftentimes so like when when you arrest the guy that's selling drugs on the street corner I mean assuming that he was selling a lot of drugs on that street corner somebody else is just going to start selling drugs on the street corner And, and everybody knows that so the game it not anymore it's not like that it's not like drugs were being sold on that street corner because that person was a bad person and we need to punish that person and like or and or reform that person or something like there's some other reason that that drugs are being sold on that corner and we need to kind of wrap our minds around that it's we have a tendency to blame the individuals and in all these things without having a good enough understanding of the context in which they operate in.
0: It's like uh, trying to use like gum or your fingers to plug holes in a dam. Like, water is going to flow to the lowest point. And in this case, like the drugs are going to be sold and used because people sell and use drugs. People just like drugs, whether they're legal or illegal. We like yeah. drugs of all types, from alcohol, tobacco to all the illegal yeah. ones. We, we use them in every socioeconomic status and every gender, every race. Like, across the board, human beings typically, a percentage of us will use drugs.
2: Yep. and we we've known that now for quite a while that making something illegal doesn't destroy demand for it that you know, um, and and really back in like the the early 20th century, the prohibition movement and the abolition movement um or sorry, the prohibition of uh, alcohol and the the prohibition of drugs, um, both sort of were arguing that when we made these things illegal, people would just stop using them. And that was the whole mechanism through which prohibition was supposed to work. Like you make it illegal, people stop using it and then it's no longer a problem. Um, and when people kept using it, it was like, okay, these people are the problem. Um, but, you know, that was a, a, an experiment that we tried was just wrong, like people, it did not destroy demand. All it did was make the thing that they were demanding now illegal um, and really shift the playing field, makes everything more dangerous, um, makes it more violent, um, but doesn't make it go away.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. A hundred years later, we're still sort of fighting the same fight, but with a different drug. And still, even the fact that we have the war on drugs and the schedules that started with the war on drugs, which began at the end of the Cannabis Stamp Act, because Leary sued saying, if I have to buy a stamp to say that I can cultivate cannabis, which is illegal, then I'm self-incriminating. And then that was 1969, 1970. They're like, well, fuck that. We're going to make it illegal again. And we're going to do it across the board and we're going to schedule every single drug. And that was, uh, it's sort of been a nightmare for a lot of people because they can use the justice system against people willy-nilly when they want to. And if you so happen to be on the wrong side of the law, you can really get the hammer thrown at you.
2: That's the real insidious part about the drug laws is the way that they've sort of been set up with the war on drugs is that police basically have discretion to go, law enforcement has discretion to go after some offenders and not to go after others so they can sort of pick and choose in a way that, Law enforcement can't sort of pick and choose about like which murderers to go after, right? They got to go after like all the murderers, but like, yeah, the war on drugs, we can like basically ignore drug use that's going on in like Hollywood studios. And we can basically ignore drug use that's going on in like, you know, Manhattan boardrooms. And we can focus on drug use that's going on in these cities that we want to, or these parts of the city that we want to more heavily police anyways, because that's what we want to do. And, and drugs give us this really convenient excuse to be able to do that. I, even though, you know, there's plenty of drugs being used in Hollywood and Manhattan and, you know, in, in the Bronx or wherever else, like in the, in those other parts of the city. Um, the yeah, so it, it's a, a law that they can wield with discretion, but it, it's also a law that they really built a lot of sort of public support around that they can wield with absolute moral authority. So like when they choose to go after somebody, they can like, you know, go after them and and throw the hammer at them. Some of that's really changing in the last few years, um, our thoughts about this. But like, that's how the war on drugs was cultivated as this, you know, you, you can choose who you want to go after. And then when you go after them, you can absolutely destroy their lives. Um, so of course that, that appeals to, People that want that sort of discretionary use of, of, of power.
0: It's also sadly why animals in the United States are considered property because the war on drugs led to a lot of DEA agents shooting a lot of dogs and those dogs being deemed property and not being really valued much in, in the courts, which is shockingly sad because if anybody fucks with your animal, you don't really have much recourse. Um, they're, in some states, there are a little bit more uh, you know, animal rights people and, and certain uh, criminal agencies do go after animal abuse but that being said uh in like a civil setting like if somebody did kill or harm your dog there's very little that you can do to get any uh restitution for it so that is a one of the other sad factors of the war on drugs I, i saw in california this year or last year a legal grow legal like had a permit that got raided because they maybe had too many plants or cultivated outside of the zone and while they're owner of the property was handcuffed they shot his dog that like wasn't even fucking bothering people and it was on video and like this was a northern california people like the that sheriff's office kind of got right rightful a lot of pushback it was one of the worst incidents like some of the times i get it you know fucking dogs coming at people they're barking and shit. i never want to see it but sometimes i could sit you know understand they'll justify it because they felt like they were threatened but in certain circumstances like that one it was fucking black and white that it was wrong And uh, it's one of those things that turns us against people that are meant to, you know, be peaceful with our community and and be good within the community. So,
2: yeah. And yeah, and that's what really the war on drugs has absolutely devastated communities across this country. So um, that's one of the sort of most vilest legacies of it. And it's still going on. So, yeah, deschedule everything, basically come at all of these issues from a really different perspective I think if we want to if we want to have any kind of success at dealing with the problems that that some of these drugs present cannabis not among them
0: right and then like I'm like we mentioned in like last prisoner project and other shows like I'm for being tough on crime if it's like violent crime like not it wasn't the cannabis that made people pull guns on each other or you know whatever drug when people start doing that we have laws in place for doing stuff like that uh so when that stuff happens we should charge that harshly because we don't want to live in a society where people fucking just roll up on each other and fucking pull guns out and, and steal each other's cars valuables fucking money anything like uh, that's yeah. not the way any of us want to live as much yeah. as wild west movies might you know justify or glorify it it's a uh, in reality a very ugly ugly situation to live in where peace is definitely the better choice and uh so I'm curious Brandon do you have any thoughts on the uh rescheduling descheduling or uh, just general conversation about we've been having
3: well as far as the rescheduling that's bad for everybody in business because it essentially changes all of the the federal guidelines on uh, what can be produced and not produced uh who can distribute so it's better that it just stays where it's at as opposed to be rescheduled um but i mean if you're trapping and you don't really give a shit prices of weed will probably go back up you know what i mean but it's a whole shit show anytime the government gets involved in In any type of free market enterprise or anything over control regulation. You guys already know how that ends. It's always a shit show. Nobody fucking wins. Unless it's a fucking huge corporation, you know? So.
0: I'll say this I've seen like automotives get better. We have like safer cars than we had in the 1920s. Less people die. Although we have like way more people driving. There's, you know, the auto industry is safer because of certain regulators. And it red tape is annoying, but people in California don't die every time there's an earthquake because you know we learned in 1907 when San Francisco had thousands of people die. Just like if you look at some of these other countries right now, when there's a giant ass earthquake, a bunch of people die, a bunch of buildings get destroyed. That doesn't happen in California. And we have way bigger earthquakes happening constantly. And it's because we do have a lot of red tape. I thought it was ridiculous when I have, had a buddy in real estate who was bitching about not being able to put up a ceiling fan. But then one of my electrician friends said, do you know what a ceiling fan weighs? (laughs) And do you know how easily those fucking things come down when people put them up incorrectly? And like, do you know how difficult they can be to mount if you don't mount it correctly? And do you know how dangerous it is if you get one of those things fucking spinning and it falls on somebody while they're sleeping? So there's sometimes regulation.
3: Does it though? It's like most of the places here, they don't even have a zoning and coding enforcement. If you want to build a rocket pad on your property or a roller coaster, more power to you. That's on you. You know what I mean? It's not... Like, I don't I don't like that car safety, all that stuff. Like, I don't like I get it, but I don't fucking I don't like it. You know what I mean? I don't like it when people whoever decides, hey, you need to regulate this or you need to regulate that. I'm I'm a more of a less government is good government kind of guy.
0: I get the less government, more fun attitude, but like you could still go to a drag strip and race a car that is not street legal. Right. You could still go have the fun. You could soup up a fucking car and go 300 miles an hour and have fucking parachutes flying off the back of it. And you don't have to wear a seatbelt if you don't want to. I'm sure they're going to make you wear a helmet and have a roll cage or some shit. But like sensible shit that most people are going to put on there if you're going to go that fast because there's risks associated. I don't think that's because yeah. of I mean, my, the regulation. I mean, my
2: freedom to swing a stick ends at the edge of your head. You know, right. um, I'm, fr- I'm free to swing a stick around, but not when it starts causing harming others, or injuring other people around me or whatever. So when we want to live in large societies and large groups, we agree to sort of give up certain freedoms in order to maintain everybody's health and safety and and peace and quiet and all sorts of other things. So you can sign me up for being a team player and willing to like recognize the greater good.
0: Well, like I'll give an example. Like Brandon was talking about in Oklahoma or anywhere, really, if you have enough property, you can own a vehicle and and drive it around your land without a license, without a driver's license, because it's your land, it's private property. The second I go onto public roads, then I need a driver's license. So there's a a regulation. So each state is going to say, you need to take a certain test that shows that you're qualified to be on a public road and that your vehicle meets certain standards that we deem whatever. And that's one of the things I really do love about the U S is each state is different. You could go to Oklahoma where they don't have as much, uh, regulation on your vehicle. And in California, you have to get your car smogged every year. If you have a car that produces exhaust or whatever, every other year, whatever it is. So people can kind of vote with their feet and then live where they feel is most sensible. And and the people within those areas, choose the laws that they feel are best for their state. And, uh, I, I think it's one of the great experiments and, uh, showing that our democracy is truly kind of functioning in that, that way, like COVID showed that every single state had a different rollout, whether we liked it or not. Certain states were really closed and certain states were really open and uh, people got to choose. A lot of people moved during that time because they were like, fuck this. You know, I'm not going to live in a place that tells me I can't do what I'm going to do. So it uh, it just shows me that I'm glad that we still have the freedoms to do that. You, they were able to leave. If you were in California and you're like, fuck this, I, I feel like I'm too restricted. I want to go somewhere else. Then you were free to leave still. And uh, I think as much regulation as we do have, we still have a lot of freedom to do things as long as we're, you know, courteous individuals within society, and we're not harming others, and uh, being respectful, and you know, paying some taxes if you make some money. Uh, but some people try to avoid that, even the most wealthy. But that aside, I want to get Spartan Groan's opinion on this deschedule
1: reschedule conversation.
0: The conversation.
1: I look at it through my amateur activist eyes, and that's like every step of, I was, I was lucky enough to see the legalization process here in Michigan where the state that I live in, where it was totally illegal. It became medical in 2008, became wreck in 2015 or 2013, 2015, I think it was. And being a part of trying to get that to happen and everything to me, I look at it as just a positive step in the right direction. We're getting less, yeah of course that's not where i want it to be i would like it to be descheduled i would like it to be considered an herb like it is um but uh until i get to that point i'm not going to be upset when i'm when the pendulum swims further towards that and i think that's what this is is the pendulum swinging further closer toward that the government moves excruciatingly slow on things like this and um to get any movement at all is a win really and that's this is a good this is a good amount of movement. We go from a one to a three. That's positive in my activist eyes. You know, we skipped a step. So, and that's not even a set in stone. That was a recommendation. Um, DEA still has a final step, and the final call. And I know that the DEA has been reaching out from comment to different groups, different pro cannabis groups. And I know some of those groups are talking about a, a special schedule itself that wouldn't even be a schedule three. It would be. A special one just for cannabis so similar to what you know jack was suggesting earlier how it was kind of regulated as its own thing like tobacco or or alcohol this would be a similar one like cannabis and i think that would be if it has to be scheduled that would be the best because cannabis is so different than everything else that i think it does deserve its own kind of uh, schedule so that you can have some unique maybe rules or regulations to go with it but I think it's positive movement, so I'm not going to be mad about it. I heard it
0: proposed schedule 420, and I'm sure that's probably just tongue in cheek. But <laughs> like that, that way, is. it's literally so much further down the schedule list that it shows like the lack of severity, and also it's just kind of like a funny nod at you know cannabis history and things like that. Um, it is currently. Schedule one, and I just went to the DEA website because I think it bears sort of just glancing over schedule one drugs, substances, or chemicals are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and high potential for abuse. Some examples of schedule one drugs are heroin, LSD, marijuana or cannabis, and methamphetamine, uh,
1: ecstasy,
2: and heroin and methamphetamine and cannabis. Are they... Three
1: big ones in the LSD's board. also a joke, it shouldn't be in there either. <laughs> like
2: cocaine isn't Schedule One.
1: Yeah, that's no, crazy. it's
2: Schedule Two
0: because it has you know numbing purposes. They used it for a long time in like dental and other uh medical yeah. times. It, it, it used to be sold in fucking Coca Cola, right? I mean, that was like over the counter. They still one of most the most common.
1: They still use the leaf to flavor Coca Cola.
0: Yeah.
2: Okay yeah i mean the the drinks with wine and cocaine when coca-cola came out the prohibitionists objected not to the cocaine they objected to the wine and it, it was originally i think called french wine cola and he took out um or he marketed that um, this is pemberton in atlanta um took out the wine kept the cocaine and they were fine with that for like 38 years or something that cocaine was sold or that coca-cola was sold with cocaine in it so yeah the original controversy wasn't that it had cocaine it was that it had alcohol
0: what's funny is i ha- have some friends from croatia when they came to visit the u.s they would mix wine with coca-cola and they called it like bamus. and i have a friend in malibu who calls it jesus juice when they mix their red wine and coke and it was like shockingly it actually tastes fine day together like it tastes way better than i would have expected together like i would be like that's unpalatable hearing it but then i tried it and i was like oh this actually fucking goes down real easy and you get drunk real fast because you can drink a lot of it but you get a nasty ass hangover with all that fucking sugar so So let's just back up and
2: imagine what it was like drinking the original coca-cola okay because this was like a really popular uh, all throughout europe they were selling these kinds of drinks too at uh, the same era they were selling lots of different opium tonics and like this traveling salesman like the medicine men that like selling tonics they all had opium in them so like that's they work like people were like wow this stuff like definitely makes me feel better or whatever
0: why well, our <laughs> grandpas could hike up hill both ways through the snow and still you know make it to that you know double yeah. shift they had it's coke true. in, in their the late
2: Coca-Cola. 1800s like in the UK they finally did like the, a national census of births and deaths and they realized that the number one thing that was killing infants was opium poisonings um like the accidental opium poisonings of children that's actually one of the reasons that drug prohibition started to get caught up that and after the US civil war a lot of the US civil war was the first large scale battle that morphine was available for which was made by distilling um opium and um a lot of the soldiers started to become addicted to morphine and you could sort of see that. So the the prevalence of addiction and the sudden sort of awareness that people were, were the babies particularly were dying from opium poisonings. Um, But anyways, back to like the Coca-Cola, it had a bunch of of caffeine in it, which it still does, right? We still drink Coca-Cola for like a buzz. So it had all this, this caffeine in it and like a, a good dose of cocaine, like this was like the the monster, the Red Bull or whatever. They were like energy drinks at the time. Um, so yeah, eighteen stimulant on stimulant, like, popping off a little bit more than we sort of imagine. Like everybody was high on cocaine and opium.
0: Did it have caffeine when it had coke? So it was like a double. It was like a monster, like caffeine and guarana, or you know, sugar plus caffeine or whatever. You know, they're trying to get you hooked yeah, on both. I believe and- so. Funny enough, kind of a callback to earlier. Schedule 3 drugs, substances, or chemicals are defined as drugs with moderate to low potential for physical or psychological dependence. Schedule 3 drugs abuse potential is less than Schedule 1 and Schedule 2 drugs, but more than Schedule 4. Some examples of these are 90 milligrams of codeine per unit, Tylenol, ketamine, anabolic steroids that was the callback and testosterone so kind of ironic slash funny that it would be potentially recategorized to the same schedule as steroids which we had quite a discussion about earlier so that's more appropriate of a schedule for sure it would suck who would have control over it and like what brandon and others have referenced that the fact the the regulations would change there would have to be a huge discussion of how that would unfold for current license holders because potentially that would say you either all need to shut down or become pharmaceutical
1: grade or level overnight, which 99% of them.
2: No, I I don't think that why
1: because it's right now it's more illegal than what it is. So this would be making it less illegal. So we could still, the States could still say, fuck what you say. This is what our system is to regulate and you can treat federal, whatever the fuck you want to treat federal. And we could continue doing that, whether it's one or three, that doesn't change that.
2: And none of the current state legalization programs are in any way based on the the federal scheduling Scheduling. system, because according to the federal scheduling system, you cannot use cannabis for anything and it has no medical value and there's no, it's a non-starter. So all of those state programs are technically federally illegal under the scheduling guidelines um, and have been flying in the face of it, you know. Ever since the original medical legalization,
0: that is a good point. So, I do think that you know, going to schedule three is potentially the better choice, but a lot of people, I guess, fear because big pharma, as they have a large amount of sort of lobbying abilities, uh, Brandon, if you turn your camera to the side, I'll spotlight you. They, I think worry that pharma will eat like they're even doing with home grow right now. And a lot of states come in and try and cut back, reduce and take away rights that we already have in like Canada prohibition 2.0. They had a lot of stuff going on where you could grow certain amount of plants with medical licenses. And now there's like 10 new ways you can get arrested in Canada for possessing or mishandling cannabis that wasn't on the books before legalization. So it is something we have to be sort of careful with and, and see how it unfolds to make sure it's done properly. Brandon, what are we looking at right here? It looks like uh, it's chunking
3: up. This is sour cheeseberry. This one is. A couple more weeks on these. These ones are really chunky too. These acne bull riders. Nice. And then I have some ones that are super tall. Here's a little lime
0: That one's frosty. Oh, look at that! That one's a beast. What is this giant?
3: This is a uh, limarilla and bread limes. It's huge. It's like uh, twelve feet tall.
0: It's looking nice. I like that structure, man. It's a nice, uh, kind of like candelabra, but still nice and tall, supporting its weight.
3: Yeah. Look up. I got progress. gotta do a little bit of cleaning. I can see some lights. Yeah, I gotta fix that too.
0: Hey, the indoor's popping off.
3: I'm doing
0: Brandon, stand in the um, stand in the doorway and just talk talk to us from the doorway, and then point the video camera in. Because when you walk in there, it cuts off because the roof and all the insulation and stuff. It's we can't see or hear anything at this point. While we wait for Brandon to maybe get back to the door. Um, oh, actually, now I can see his plants. So I'll respotlight him. Can I get back? Yeah, I, c- I can hear you now, actually, and see. It just cut off for a second there.
3: Because I was on my Wi-Fi. I just transplanted these today. Some grill Glue.
0: Some limerilla. An Afghani bull rider.
3: There's some other stuff in here too. Nothing, nothing crazy, but yeah, I got my room all. I have, I have six of these, but I'll probably just use four in here and then put a couple of the little tents over there. Yep. Very cool, man. Coming along. I did want to
0: share something in terms of the, uh, Current scheduling and how I think it is clearly um, set to it should change, obviously, because when you have stuff like this, and this is from 1999 cannabinoids as antioxidants and neuroprotectants. And who holds this patent? This is a patent on Google Patents. So you can look it up. Uh, US 6630507B1. And if you just go down, This was assigned to Health and Human Services, the government of the United States of America, represented by the secretary of the Department of uh, whatever. But here are the individuals. And so they've known since 1999, at least, that cannabinoids have antioxidant properties and neuroprotective properties, yet it still continues to be in schedule one. And. I just think it's that... not based
2: on science. It's a political thing, Jack. Yeah. So it's like, it, yeah, it, it's in schedule one, because I, I think originally Nixon wanted to make a point against the hippies that he was rallying against to get reelected, um, you know, in the early seventies when they were protesting against the Vietnam war and cannabis first started becoming a big sort of countercultural thing. Nixon wanted to throw the book at, them and rallied up that sort of support behind that position so like this isn't because scientists were there saying like there's no medical use for this or whatever this is this is the kind of of political regulation that people are bitching about in chat um there's no justification for it
0: yeah because i mean this just absolutely destroys the the, uh the case of no medical property obviously because like it it just yeah it it becomes a few people did say like this the stance that the government currently is continuing to take is one of the things that makes them have such like a anti-government stance almost because if they're gonna regulate this so harshly and fly so in the face of what is common sense it is like not only offensive to certain people i mean it's ruined the lives and communities like we've referenced earlier Uh, last prisoner project 40,000 still currently in jail for cannabis related offenses, which is way too many. And so, I mean, it's it's still fresh on my mind. And one of those things that as I see articles continue to pop up, I feel like it's in the zeitgeist of the cannabis growing community of we're all seeing this on, you know, whatever things you choose to follow. A lot of people are reposting like, or if, even just, if you watch the news, they're talking about it on mainstream media because it's become one of the current talking points, especially with election cycles coming up, they tend to make a lot of promises and then often <laughs> deliver. And that's both sides. So I'm not trying to like pick any parties here, but that's a uh, just a common occurrence. Just be aware with your political, uh, you know, if you have high expectations, you might be let down by the promises that they often, you know, fail to deliver. Sometimes they do make shit happen. So try your best to get good people in office. And vote. I mean, if you don't vote, then you have no fucking chance to change. You have no, you can't sit on the sideline and complain if you're not going to participate in the process. Or,
1: or you can be the one to complain. You can go right to the office of your lawmaker and you can go in there and you can complain to them. You absolutely can do that. They're, they're, rep. they are your representative in the body of government. They're supposed to be representing you. So it's almost, almost uh, to me, this is what i hold myself. I don't want to put it on anybody else, but to me, it's almost my duty to make sure. Whoever repre- represents me has a good understanding of cannabis because that's probably one of the more important things to me uh, in my life. So if if I sat at home bitched about it and never talked to my representative, I wouldn't be doing myself very much good. I'm shooting my own foot. So I mean, and if you're don't have if you're not a people person, that email still works. That works good too. phone calls, any of that stuff. But uh, you can get the conversation moving. Maybe you can educate them, and maybe they can make uh, positive choices. They don't, they can't know everything, and usually nobody does. And usually, they don't know shit about cannabis, <laughs> unfortunately.
0: Think about how much time we spend keeping up with the current, you know, laws, grow, you know, uh, techniques, genetics, uh, IPM regiments, and things Studies. like that. It's hours, you know, uh, weekly for many of us, and uh, a lot of these people spend zero a year doing any research. So if you could even talk to them and and like uh, Matthew does with his IPM presentation, synthesize you know years worth of work or or months worth of discussions into a few minutes of really important talking points that you think here's the things that are wrong, here's what you can do to change it. Um, and here's why it's important to me and the community and be as friendly as you can. And and maybe share a little bit about how your non-cannabis life is, you know, in the community. Like I do this, this, and that, that, uh, I'm able to do because as a cannabis user, I I benefit. I think that shows, uh, there's a lot of good, hardworking people in the community that want and need access to quality medicine, like cannabis.
1: And one of my favorite here, you guys can steal this. This is a little ace from Spartan's Pocket. So one of my favorite ways to open a conversation with somebody important, it could be a, lawma- a lawmaker, it could be it could be a principal at a school. It could. I want to know where they're coming from first. I want to know where the biggest misunderstanding is. And I tack that first. So to do that, before I say anything about cannabis, I want to know what they know. So I like to open questions where the first meeting with somebody was you know, hey what are your what's your stance on cannabis what do you what do you what do you think about cannabis and just see what they say and um it, it just it's an open conversation then because it's gonna like you're gonna have more questions and as they talk you're gonna want to correct things and it usually is just a free flowing conversation from then on out but even even an email or a written form that would work be like look i'm your constituent i'm uh you know, I'm a big proponent for cannabis. I've seen its medical healing powers. I just want to know what your stance on cannabis is and how do you feel about it? And boom, you can get an email back and then, and figure out what, if anything, maybe there isn't an an issue. Maybe they're on the same exact side as you and 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 you're singing the same tune and then you're good. But uh, that's not usually the case. (laughs) Usually, Usually there's something in there that needs to be fixed or something in there that their understanding wrong or um, they just need to be educated on. And honestly, it's usually on the growing side of things. They just have no con- concept. They're usually fairly educated and the information is fairly concise and and not really contested online as far as the smoking side of things goes. But when it comes to growing, there's so, so much conflicting information that even somebody trying to do some research outside who has no growing experience isn't going to, I mean, who knows what they'll believe. So and that's usually what the contentions are: is there unfair regulations and on the growing side, the home growth side, and that's usually what I'm talking to politicians about. So, just some of my thoughts on that.
0: A lot of great points. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions about growing because I think a lot of potentially inaccurate information online, and also what I'll call legacy, um, you know, illicit grows that got busted. Uh, because that's what like the police will be like, we chopped down X amount of plants and we got X amount of weight and this or whatever, they have this much on them so that this type of area must be able to produce this amount. And then they try to blanket apply that across the board to things. And sometimes it just doesn't line up. Sometimes it's too much, sometimes it's too little. And the diversity of a living biological plant like cannabis, that can be as short as one foot tall and have, you know, a few ounces of bud yield on it versus a you know, 20 foot tall plant that can have several pounds on it. We're talking like there's a big spectrum of what the plant can do. So it's difficult for regulators to kind of understand plant counts and what is possible. And, you know, the the fact that like a number might seem scary if somebody's like, oh, I have a hundred plants, but like if they're all seedlings, like that's not harming fucking anybody. Like if they have a tray of seedlings, like nobody's in danger. That guy's not a trapper. He's just like looking to see which one's grow the best from the earliest and maybe he made a bunch of his own seeds and he just wants to fucking hunt through them real quick versus, yeah. you know, doing five or 10 at a time. Well, let's do 50 or hundred, but right. they see a hundred plants. Oh man, this guy's a fucking criminal because you can only have six. And if you have 12, that's double. If you have 24, then you're fucking four times over. If you have a hundred, you just don't give a shit about the law. And this is where these drug laws can be used against people that are, you know, fairly decent, good meaning people in society that just, fucking stick their foot in the wrong pool for a second and then this is why it's a good thing to be good to people around you generally because like oftentimes it's like the ex-girlfriend or ex-partner that people fuck over that end up turning them in and shit like that so uh good reminder to try and (laughs) be friendly with all of your relationships as much as you can if you're in this space or just generally i think it's good life advice to be a good person uh generally i think karma is is logical and real because if you're good to people people are good back to you generally and if they're not then it's their own fucking loss
2: absolutely And that kind of harkens back to, you know, what was that, man, I hate those little thoughts that run through your head, and then they run away quickly. It just left.
0: I try and type them down in the Zoom chat. I sometimes take
2: notes. Yeah, it's helpful. I have a notebook in front of me, but I I can't do that for everything. Somebody asked me earlier if I would smoke before um, teaching classes. And no, I usually didn't. I, I had to it didn't, it doesn't help me sort of think quickly on my feet, um, which standing in front of a, a big class and giving a lecture is helpful. So it wasn't performance enhancing for me in, in that sort of situation. I guess I'm suffering a little bit of that currently.
0: I think like going back to that, though, I think uh, one of the things I mentioned, Jiu Jitsu, Eddie Bravo, uh, 10th Planet Jiu Jitsu, very famous. He beat one of the biggest Gracies and he's a big time stoner. He wasn't like the most fit. He wasn't the best in shape. He was a very, very qualified and under John Jackson Machado, like black belt, very highly qualified guy in his own right. But uh, he kind of surprised the world and a lot of the community, like a lot of I feel like stoners or weed smokers are Jiu Jitsu people. I just like notice a lot of the people that I end up talking, to, especially growers are like, Oh yeah, I fucking, I'm going to the mat. Uh, shout out to Marcus Green thumb and his, uh, his little, little one just went to a tournament and, and placed. Uh, I guess he said he got beat up a little bit there, but Hey, at least you're getting out there and, and competing and sparring and rolling and doing all that good stuff. Uh, but I I do think that there's a big part of the community uh, that enjoys cannabis and Brazilian jiu-jitsu or other things like that. And uh I'm doing a little bit of what doc just did and losing my train of thought here, but yeah, well,
2: I found mine while you were talking, Jack, so uh, excellent job there. And I wrote it down because we had talked about that. And I was like, damn, I'm not going to let this train get away from me again. Um, But it's just this thought about the the plant count regulation in general. It's a good example of a bad regulation because nobody wants to limit plants. So when you're setting a regulation to limit something, it's really important not to use proxies and to try to go right after whatever it is that you're trying to limit, because the extent that you use proxies like plant count, it's going to encourage everybody to do things to kind of get around those limits. So in every place where growers are limited by plant count, they're growing big plants. And that's causing inefficient cultivation strategies, frankly, I think that growers in Michigan aren't able to grow as efficiently the commercial growers in Michigan aren't able to grow as efficiently as growers in other states that don't have plant caps, because they're they're forced to maximize to their plant count number whatever that is like we can only get 2800 plants or i mean that would be probably big for a lot of those facilities say like 600 plants um we got to figure out okay then we can have you know 200 vegging at one time and we're going to have 400 and you got to like do your whole cultivation strategy around that and you know, you're going to veg them longer to grow bigger plants, and it really encourages sort of market perversions. Um, If you can, and and they don't want to limit plants, they are more concerned about living harvest quantity, maybe. Um, And you should ask really hard questions about why is it important to limit that in the first place, like what what are these goals trying to get to? Because that's the way that you end up creating stupid regulations that don't accomplish the goals that we want, and that everybody ends up sort of just pushing away against and finding loopholes through and and running less efficiently because they have to deal with that.
1: and the frustrating part is is there's good examples like California has solved that plant count. and they said, no, not plant count. Let's go canopy space, you know. So it's the better. frustrating part is there's a better example, you know, that's the that's the good and the bad thing about the 50 state system is how, yep. you know, that's 50 incubation chambers trying different things to see what works. Well, you know what would taking be better, advantage of Spartan? that, what would be better?
2: Let's start limiting indoor grows electrical consumption
1: no let's not do that
2: (laughs) well if you gotta limit something (laughs) screw canopy space screw plant count like if you want to limit something why are you want to limit the thing in the first place but set like you know some some number of gigawatts or something and then force them to economize around that so then they're going to be using the power as efficiently as possible because they're going to want to grow as many as much cannabis as they can but we're limited by this that's going to spur so i would i would put a caveat
1: I like it, but I put a caveat to it. I, I just put a little rider under this bill, and I say we put we cap the electricity pulled from the grid.
2: Sure, so if you and want to expand, you to make your solar own panels. Exactly absolutely but think about why you're limiting something in the first place and to people booing like i don't think there should be any kind of limits to this in terms of production of of cannabis i think plant count limit is just about the stupidest way to do it though because it doesn't limit anything it just forces growers to grow in less efficient ways
1: right i agree and maybe more dangerous ways in a home setting possibly
0: Yeah, like
2: growing
1: big, massive plants that are
0: risks for multiple different reasons.
2: Yeah. And yeah, risks for crop loss for sure. Um, But there are more labor involved in that. I mean, that's good or bad, depending on which side of that I suppose that you're on. But um, yeah, it was just wild. Like the whole whole plan has to really change. Um, You know, I've done two big sort of full cultivation strategies for for commercial grows um one in the state without a plant count one in the state with a plant count and in the plant count it, like that determined like almost everything that we had to do um, so
0: yeah i mean you have to engineer the grow from that point like from ground up we have a thousand plants. Okay. We have five rooms. Okay. We have X and veg and we have this mountain flower and we're going to yep. pull down cycles at this rate based yep. on it. It becomes like a, a math equation of like what you're potentially when able to do. Plant
2: become a plant. Can we keep these clones? Not technically as plants in there <laughs> so, so that funny. we don't have to harvest That's a shaded have to them up until after we harvest that other room. So then we, I mean, it's just a whole, but it's like, Jesus Christ. I mean, it's like, this is stupid. That's like if they have roots read. or if they
0: don't have roots, like we're talking about something that might happen over a one to two week period or not at all. Like if they don't fucking strike, like for whatever reason, like if there's something, some issue in the rooting process. So like, I think Michigan's one of those states where if it doesn't have roots, it's not a plant. So you can have hundreds or thousands of cuts that are not plants that are waiting to be plants that are potentially going to sprout roots at some point. And then you've got thousands of plants all of a sudden. So you really <laughs> have to figure out your timing if you're going to start really maximizing and dialing in what you're capable of producing in those uh, circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, We do have a good question. And it's like the only question that I've seen actually copied over. I know that we've gotten a lot of uh, people commenting in the chat and and tagging me. So I'm not sure. I haven't been looking too actively. I've been just part of the conversation. When there's only four of us, it's harder to keep up with the chat for myself. Uh, But person one a long time ago said, uh, and shout out to you, person one I think you are still here, if I'm not mistaken. But... At Cheap Home Grow, I'm interested in making my own vape cartridges. I just mispronounced that a little bit, but what's the safest slash most effective way to go about it, or at least an avenue to research and explore? And uh, I'm going to hand this off to maybe Spartan or anybody else who's given it a try, because this is not something that I've ever experimented with, to be perfectly honest.
1: Yeah, I don't have experience with this, but I would do Brandon's way. Brandon's way sounds like the best way because it's solventless where you basically make a, you do a bubble wash. you Is that what it's called? It's called bubble wash. You wash bubble it, hash. Bubble yeah. hash, yeah. So you wash it with water with bags and you, and you collect, you put it all together, you dry it in a dry sift or dry it in a, in a freeze dryer if you got the cash. Um, you get that super dry stuff and you can press that into rosin. Then you take that rosin you can put it into a jar <laughs> under a little bit of heat and pressure and uh, get it to basically homogenize into a, uh, viscous liquid enough to you can just uh, fill carts with to my understanding that's the basic overview brandon you've made carts with that product haven't you
0: if i'm not mistaken i I think i remember you at least talking about that process when you uh, were first discussing it
3: um so typically uh i have eddie do it I'll give him my material for like cash and stuff. And he'll do it because he has all the equipment and stuff like that. But what he'll do with them is he puts them into like syringes. So that way you can dose yourself out like the size of a rice grain. But essentially it's full spectrum hash um, from the bags, all the bags. And then that is dried and then pressed. And that is then crashed out over you know uh not high heat but low heat 140 for a little while till everything turns to an oil and you can use that to fill carts as well um but i know there's some other type of rosin tech um, but i just don't i don't do a lot of the hash making stuff i know that they can they do like the live resin pens and i know that i even have some But it's also oil. So I think they're doing maybe something similar where they're doing like a, you know, crashing it out where they're putting it on a low heat for a long time. And
0: live resin and live rosin are a slight difference. Live resin typically is referring to, you know, a a product that maybe made with solvents. Uh, Live rosin is typically referring to like the solventless product that's sort of doing the process that you're describing. My wife worked in the industry for a few years recently, and a lot of companies have attacked this solventless pen dilemma. And it's a weird one because, like, if you know real heady hash guys, like, they'll stick their shit in like a freezer or in like a little thing and run around with like a little uh, cooler everywhere they go if it's going to be too warm or have like a hash fridge and things like that because they're trying to maintain temperatures, humidities, because the really expensive, really fancy, like nice, high quality solventless dabs tend to not keep their consistency unless they're stored at proper temperatures. So as soon as it gets too warm, uh, it'll literally start to change like from that really desirable texture, maybe to an undesirable one, or maybe it goes from something, whatever.
3: Yeah, they're never as good as if you were, you know, getting a fresh dab, but they did figure some, some of that stuff out where... They, they make the carts only half grams they don't do full grams uh because after a little while of that heating element it starts to change the flavor so they figured they figured that part out okay so only do half grams and then there are some uh varieties that just taste better in that form like i know that the grape gases tastes really really good and you can still get full flavor but some other stuff just kind of just tapes like uh like hash, you know, like a hash pen.
0: Yeah. So just- I think some of the esters and like grape stuff um come through, like that methylandrenylate comes through. It's really sweet. It's literally what they use for artificial grape flavoring and in, in the candies. And so when that heats up and it volatizes off, it's like immediately hits your palate and it's recognizable. The terpenes in a lot of that rosin are gone after like the first 10, maybe 15 puffs on that pen. And then you're just getting essentially like THC distillate <laughs> or close to it uh maybe cbn and hashishine and other things like that but it's heating and cooling and heating and cooling over and over and over again so a lot of the time i just i would agree with brandon probably go half half grams because essentially it gives it less time for it to be interacting with the heat over and over and over um this is the benefit right total cycles by the time it's done
3: some some uh like carts that are produced with solvents will actually taste a little better they'll reintroduce terpenes with some of those types of things um but the thing is the the live rosin you know it's a little cleaner in my opinion and it's really about kind of convenience you know what i mean they don't smell as strong as if you were burning flour and you can kind of take it on the go with you. It's quick. It's easy. You can kind of, if you need to like incognito puff, you can do so. But, you know, it's it's also, uh, they're also a little bit more pricey than just uh, like a distillate or uh, like a res- like live resin.
0: Definitely more costly. Uh, even the best ones, I feel like uh, there's a meme. It's showed like the little... Uh, hand blow dryers in the bathroom and it's like never gets your hands all the way dry and then it showed like a little vape pen it's like never gets you all the way high and i just thought that was kind of a funny reference because that's sort of how i feel like if i'm gonna get fully medicated it's gonna be from like bong rips and rso versus like the the puffs on the pen to me are like more of a maintainer or a nice little discreet way like uh my wife's been known to bring them into the bathroom and just fucking go rip them in the bathroom stall From anywhere, I I won't incriminate her, but yeah, she's a very avid user of those for that purpose. And I can see why a lot of people enjoy the discreteness and and portability of it. And it's just always like on you, you just press a button and boom, you've got a fucking nice hit, which is better than nothing, which a lot of people have at that time. So it's a a good option for a lot of people, I guess.
3: We rip those pens, but we're both bong people. Like that's how I get high. I got to take a big old fat bong rip to the dome. You know, yeah, those, just work down a big old fatty bowl.
1: I'm with you. I get high off the bong. Those are just flavor sticks, those things. They like, with the? Pfft. Yeah, I don't. I'm not. I'll, if I get but them for glitch, free, I'll hit them until they're gone. But I'm not going to buy those. They just.
3: Yeah. Like I know a lot of people sticks. that are joint smokers, right? They'll, you know, go through yeah. the whole thing, roll up a joint and they'll smoke, smoke a joint. And it's like, man, I could smoke a whole joint and not get nearly as high if I just do a like, solid bong rip.
1: Especially if I do a solid bong rip with Keith in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Turbocharge.
2: Bell ringer.
1: That's a good way to start
3: the day. Yeah. You know what? I yes, don't see a whole lot of traditional hash. Like it's not really in the market. And even my friends, you know, don't really have a lot a of hash. But I love smoking traditional hash right on top of flour you know that's a fucking good way to get a bell ringer too, where you're just
0: like watching it melt and bubble all over your flour and like how spartan just had the hemp wick i think that's one of my favorite ways to smoke like a little bit of hash i'll roll up a little snake and and twirl it into the bowl and i'll just kind of roll over and i try to make all the hash melt before i even start smoking the flour because if you hold it just far enough away just watching a bubble yeah you can just bubble it down onto the flour and then it kind of makes this little like sheen over top of the flower and then when you're ready you can just and fucking it, really rip it and in the flower is important hit. to
1: be there because if you had a screen there it'd just go through it the flower is like a sponge and it absorbs it and then you then you can blow out that first hit which is awesome but then you take the fucking the thousand degree bick or whatever it is and you just could yeah. crush that flower and just take all the rest of that to the dome oh It's like a cannabinoid
0: rush, you know. Like I I think that's probably the reason that we enjoy it so much versus a joint. If you're getting a let's call it a hundred milligrams or a thousand milligrams, whatever it is, however fat you roll it or how many bong rips you take of whatever strength. With a bong, it's like all in like one or two hits, right? You're feeling that that dose versus like a puff of a joint. You might take 30, 40, 50 puffs off of a joint to get the same dosage. So it's almost like in my head, like the equivalent of taking like a shot of whiskey versus like, you know, drinking a few beers over. A little bit of a more prolonged time so i
1: think that's why yeah. we get that sensation is a little bit more uh pronounced i, I was, i just call, always called it the poor man's dab <laughs> i was like that's my poor man's dab man i'll get the, the dab og dab sometimes, yeah like back in the hot knife days uh i we first started doing it with
0: just hash and then we would put a little bit of flour in there because if you get the fucking nice hot enough you can get a real <laughs> wicked hit <laughs> hot knife and just the right amount i would try and get the you know I even saw people would use spoons.
3: (laughs) Hey, do you guys remember the little bell, the bell pipe, right? It was like, uh, it had a little plate on there that you heat up. And then it had like a little thing that you would flip over. It would just kind of direct the smoke. So that way you could hit it and you heated up the plate. And then you just, you'd like stuck your hash on there. And then you put the little cover on it. So, and then just start hitting it.
1: I remember that, but that sounds fucking awesome. (laughs)
0: I've seen similar devices like well, Smart Poker and uh, others have kind of uh, brought that back uh, as of late. I think the even just using like a, a whiskey glass or a wine glass or something like that and putting the hash on a little pin, uh, burning sort of it Art a little Man. bit, covering it. Art Man, yeah, and a few yeah. others have definitely been rocking that
3: hash that way. There's hash a group under glass.
0: of under Nasha extracts out here who like they do old school traditional hash like that and they sell some uh, like wooden like bases. That have a glass piece that goes over and then there's like a little removable piece on the top so you can like let it fill up and then you remove the thing and you can take it almost like a, a bong toke so there's
1: some yeah, uh cool tech out there for sure red's got red's got some red and back i've got something like that too little hash it's got a nail already embedded in that wood piece too so so you can just put your piece of hash onto that stick it on the nail you can light it let it start to you can light it, let it light, then blow it out, and let it start to smoke and then stick your dome over top. And then there's a like a routed out groove that fits the bowl that you're setting over top. So it fits down in and seals tight. And then like you said, I think, yeah, that's cool as hell. It just that's fills a great, that whole thing up.
0: Great invention. I think it's a, a old school thing. Like this is probably from like, you know, ages ago in either Morocco or Afghanistan or somewhere, they uh probably figured this out, but uh, it could be more modernized. And I'm just, you know, thinking that it's of old times, but it's a simple but very effective way to consume some old school hash, which uh, definitely gets the job done.
3: Yeah, dude, stoners have been around for like tens of thousands of years.
0: Brandon, we had a question from... Uh, I can't remember who it's from. Well, well I'll just read the question. <laughs> question for Cheap Home Grow uh, and Brandon. How has... Your grow changed. Your grow tech changed the final product. Is there a measurable difference in the final flower with all the sap testing and analysis? Uh, how do you grow differently in your home grow versus uh, the other grows, being that you have less products and less testing?
3: Oh, I still test. I test my soil from my home grow. I test, and then I work with all tons of farms. And uh, they all test soils and I give them the recommendations. So I do that uh, because here's the thing. So we're looking at a certain target for the soil. And if I'm there, then I know exactly what I need to do for the rest of the run. Okay It's going to be front loading calcium, make sure we have the amount of nitrogen, making sure we have you know enough calcium through the whole thing, but also giving that phosphorus during transition. And also at the start, you know a lot of people, forget that uh, they need a little more phosphorus when they're younger over more than they even need nitrogen to really help them get those roots going. But I do the same program uh, and it's the same exact thing. So nothing's really changed. I mean, I use all of my biologicals in my program, the microbes. If I find other multifunctional products, because before I wasn't using the Kiaha, and now I use the Kiaha in my program because, again, it has all these different, you know, it's got the the uh, surfactant properties, it's, you know, a pest deterrent, it's got cytokinin and phytohormones and stuff. So, there's nothing really that I've changed, man. I just saw based off of this uh, agronomy. I mean, once The home you, growth is a scaled-down
0: version of the commercial grow, it sounds like.
3: It's the exact same, yeah, and the reason why is because once you have a system figured out with, you know, that's all data-driven, you're using the same lab and everything, you just, it's just repetition after that. It's the same thing that a corn or a uh, agronomist would, you know, they know what those levels are, they, you know, they look at the soil test and say, hey, this is what you need to add, you know, to get the result that you guys are looking for, so I just do the same thing over again.
0: Do you work with uh, Steve Cantwell at all at Green Life Productions? I think it's called over in Vegas. I saw you just commented on one of his posts and he was like, this is our 37th run with this soil. And he's like, at this point, it's like, you know, they're so consistent. It almost like looks the same each run, but to do that is is very difficult. And you have to put in a lot of work and a lot of testing and a lot of, uh, you know, labor goes into that, especially with living soil beds and doing it the way that they're doing it. And you and others are also doing it. Um, I'm curious, do you guys have any connection or just kind of uh, friends from a part?
1: I
3: talk to them every once in a while. Um, so the last time I, I actually sent them some uh, some seed, I sent them some seeds and some microbes not too long ago. Uh, they're doing the so, same thing. They're looking at soil data and then they're adding based off of that data. So they're doing pretty much the exact, they're they're doing the exact same thing that I'm It's science-based
0: you know, approach. Okay. And I think it's,
3: it's even the same lab. They use Logan labs as well.
0: That's it's awesome. Amazing. And I'm glad that both uh, options exist. Like, I think that what you're doing is, is very scientific and Steve's doing is very scientific. And then on the hydro side, obviously like doc and others, very scientific supported. You can look into the research, the numbers, the data. It's not like he gives you a different EC every grow. You're going for the same targets every grow, <laughs> both in the soil and in the cocoa. And it's uh, cool to see that both are at the point where you can, if you do the research, if you put the the work in, you can pretty much ensure yourself a high likelihood of success in both cultivation styles, especially indoors. I mean, you have controlled for the weather at that point, uh, which is the main thing that would essentially screw you over. (laughs) Equipment can always fail. And uh, there's always struggles with, with any uh grow if, if we're not diligent enough so it's not like a walk in the park by any means
3: cocoa grow here with the uh with the humate fertilizer because you can use it in hydroponics as well so i'm going to start building out a fertigation program for uh for cocoa
0: cool man that'll be uh fun to see i'm curious if uh, it'll be similar Easy. to like ec spartan. levels recommended for other lines go ahead doc, or not doc uh, spartan
1: yeah, I was just gonna asking Brandon for you. You're saying you're gonna be able to use the the humic. You're you're doing a feed program with the humic fertilizers. Yes. For cocoa, nice.
3: Yeah, so we're doing different media's. Um. So you know, Seattle Greg, old time marine, the Northern Lights Greg. He uh, he's been using my products for a while, and he just was telling me that he grew in straight perlite. What? Nice. I think but, but bingus nothing grows in
0: straight perlite too that's like a thing like it's not, not yeah, too but uncommon this
1: fertilizer it's so organic chelated with carbon instead of a salt yeah. this is that's big
3: yeah and so he what he was doing was he was replicating some of the science that came out of israel that they were doing nutrition things and so he's like yeah i was growing in perlite but you know so i've seen people grow in cocoa and i know and george you know told me already he's like you can use aquaponics you can use it in cocoa it's not gonna it doesn't React chemically because it's all carbichelated. So, um, the only thing that I'll have to do extra for the uh cocoa is that I will have to add more calcium and more magnesium. I was so just I'll gonna probably, say, like a cow buffered. I'll probably start with a buffered <laughs> um media because what happens is when you get raw cocoa, it a lot of times and so you want to get that sodium out of there and so usually they'll use some calmit magnesium sulfate to buffer the uh it'll help it'll help bring up the ph and it'll help also deliver a little bit of those
2: uh, ions that the plant likes well it'll prevent the cocoa from taking those cations later from the taking the calcium magnesium later on i mean Cation exchange sites and cocoa are strongly attracted to calcium and magnesium, so they can either get it before you start growing plants in it or like after, but they're going to get it. So yeah, it's a good idea to soak, do the soak in advance.
0: And then it's going to at some point continue to need a slightly increased level throughout the duration of the cultivation process once you get it to that happy medium. But that's like anything with growing. It's uh, each thing has its little particulars and uh, ins and outs that you learn and then adapt. And then like Brandon's talking about, he's going to adapt the line specifically for cocoa with probably those two nutrients in particular, which are commonly known to be a little bit uh, different in cocoa versus some other mediums. So making sure to account for that is important.
3: Add additional magnesium sulfate and probably like gypsum or calcium silica to the feeding chart.
0: be interesting to see how it goes and uh I'm obviously uh hoping that it works well for you and uh all things. And uh That's we're cool. coming up to uh almost that time where uh Spartan Grown do you guys have the Michigan Bros grow show tonight?
1: Yes, we do. All um, right, I don't you, mean before to I go, kick before out I go before I want yeah. to ask Brandon one question. Where are you at in those Nutri Pots, Brandon?
3: So this is what I just went out to Chicago. Uh, I'm not this I I just came back it was the 15th through the I think 18th I was out there and we were discussing kind of what we wanted to do. And so I put I just recently put together a pitch deck and we're going to do a capital race to get the funding to build out the uh, the facilities to manufacture those cups. And George already, um, designed the equipment and he has everything, he can have everything manufactured and just turnkey facility set up. In the meantime, I'm going to do the manufacturing manually. And so what I'll do is I'm going to have, uh, a few, hopefully like 20 or 30,000 of them ready to go by Mm -hmm. spring. Uh, next year right so during the fall and winter we'll start doing all the manufacturing for those manually
1: they, they we'll, have a long shelf life after they dry that you can just they just store as long as they stay dry
3: yeah yeah That's so, so cool. um, the first formulation that I did was too strong it was 18 15 11 and most of the seeds that I started in there died and so
1: um, what were those ones that you started that pumpkin in
3: the pumpkins, that was the only The pumpkins and the beans were the only things that took off. Yeah. That were able to withstand that high uh, level of nutrient nutrition at the beginning. And the only way I was able to do that was uh, they, they were started in just peat, no, not actual soil. So I put, I filled the cup with peat mm. and then I kept it really moist as well to keep the osmotic uh, stress low because it has had a high, you know, ec with all that nutrition um yeah. but they blew up man the I, I, feel I, did, I did a soil test and the soil that i used for the experiments back at the office was the soil that i also got from here on the property and i have just sand here so my total soluble uh nutrition in my soil is only 24 ppm you know my water has more nutrients in it than the soil does wow. it's and so, so those pots are
1: perfect food. for you. It holds all the nutrition right there and doesn't wash away. Well, yeah. And so my well, question I, is you said like 19 11 uh
0: whatever the ratios it, it could be a 10, 10 10 10 or 5 5 5 but like with that pot is there like a like equivalent of like what EC would be like the concentration of it because like that's the ratio but like how strong of that ratio was um applied to that pot or like what dosage is in that? actual pot
3: well you could look at something like ppm of solution if you were to extract solution but ec would be difficult because we're talking about uh chelated uh chelated elements right and so if you have free liberated ions in solution that's what the ec the electrical conductivity is measuring to my understanding and so it doesn't show up as like doesn't show up as a like high ec if you're measuring it, it'll you can read ppm's like parts per million.
0: Is it a slow release fertilizer? Is that why I like the EC is is low? I mean, we or... almost
2: always measure ppm within with actually measuring EC and then converting to ppm. So how would you measure the ppm? Uh, uh, just with a pen. Um, yeah, those pens measure electrical conductivity and then use a formula to convert that into a, a ppm figure. And so what they're actually doing is passing an electrical current through those two probes at the bottom of, the, of those pens. Um, right. But that is electrical current conductivity.
0: Before we finish that thought, uh, I want to let Spartan Grown get his final thoughts and shout outs in because uh, I don't want him to be kept too long before he heads on over to the Michigan Bros. Pro Show and takes care of the dogs.
1: Hey, Jack. Thanks, everybody. This has been an awesome show. Thank you. Um. Thank you, Chat. Always supplying great questions, and uh, that's why we're here. Really, you know, it's for you guys. So, um, appreciate you showing up every week to watch us. Um, I'm ready to jump over to the Michigan Bros Grow Show here, 15 minutes or 14 minutes from now. Uh, just uh, much love, growers, love, and everybody keep growing. Cheers, guys. I love Spartan. Here, Spartan. Always a pleasure having you. Shout out
0: to the Michigan Michigan Bros Grow Show. They uh, started, you know, relatively shortly after the Sheep Home Grow podcast and they've been doing their thing Sundays every week, two hours as well, you know, keeping it consistent, keeping the grow content coming. Uh, Michiganja specific over there, not all their content is, but uh, it's cool to see that they have a really tight community and I'm definitely happy that they're continuing to do their thing because a lot of shows, unfortunately, are not still doing their thing and uh, so it's, it's tough to keep that consistency, but I think a lot of uh, the passion is there, and that, that's what keeps this type of stuff alive. So I'm, I'm very thankful for them and uh, thankful that we're continuing to come and, and be here. But uh, Brandon and Doc, we're talking a little bit about the yes, NutriPot and the EC and, and the kind of how it would be measured.
3: I can't measure the EC of the cup, right, because it's solid. It's not in solution. I can measure, yeah, so maybe can measure about measuring the,
2: the EC of the media humates. instead of measuring the EC of the water that's flowing through the media. Yeah, yeah. So
3: I can measure, like, if I was to put the humates in solution in water, yep. you yep. can measure it like that. But the cup is solid. So I can't really, like, I can get the right. information on, like, the nutrient percentage and stuff from the lab. And the organic matter, they melt a few microphobic acids, and I can get the pH, but it doesn't like it doesn't give me like a PPM. I would have what I would have to do would, would be like I'd have to have one of those cups, like let's say a larger one for a larger plant or something like that. And then if I just put cocoa or peat in it and I was watering that cup, then I could take the I could take the media itself and see how much of that nutrient was diffusing into that media. At, from the breakdown of it that's the only way that i could that's the only way that i could test it because I there's no way for me to test with like a meter the ec right? i wasn't sure if there was I like a total only dose like test.
0: if they know like there's 500 milligrams of nitrogen and 80 milligrams of calcium and or, or milliliters or however it would yes. be measured
3: yes there is yes that is but it's just measured as like on a fertilizer test so it'll say you know 18 percent Nitrogen, 15% potassium or phosphorus, 11%, and then it'll go down whatever calcium, magnesium. But again, that is just a total of what makes up 100% of that cup to be right. able to see the amount of nutrition that's being released. So here's a, the, the, I think one of the ways that I would have to do that is if I have a cup that starts off that weighs like 10 grams without fertilizer. And with the fertilizer, it's 30. Then I know that there's 30 grams of fertilizer observed in that in that cup. That's and what so I was going to What's the dose?
0: What's the like weight of it... fertilizer per cup?
3: Yeah, yeah. So it just, it'll just it depend on the size of the cup. Obviously, a larger cup will uh, contain more fertilizer.
2: The fertilizers but are it'll just... related with humates. So what you said?
3: Yeah. So what? So the way that the uh, fertilizer is is produced is they're taking. Are you guys familiar with the? Uh, dang we only have ten minutes. Are you guys familiar with uh, pure humic and fulvic acids? Right, because most stuff it'll it'll say it'll say like if you buy a box of humic or fulvic acid at the grow store, it'll have maybe like eight or ten percent humic or fulvic acid, and it says derived from leonardite. And so usually it's just micronized or granulated leonardite. It's not actually extracted humic and fulvic acids. That's why the percentage is so low. Now, to be able to extract humic and fulvic acids, you have to um, you have to fluidize them, and then you have to uh, put them in. They're soluble both humic and fulvic in alkali solution, but once you uh, acidify humic acid, it actually precipitates out of solution, and so you can extract the humic and the fulvic acids, and then also the humane. The humane will drop out, and that's all of the stuff that's inside of like the lignite material right so to be able to extract that humic and fulvic acid they have to adjust the ph as a as a fluid after it's been micronized and then they can separate those once you have pure humic and fulvic acids the fulvic acids will actually there are smaller uh organic molecule and they have a lot more capacity to chelate and so you could put those under pressure and at and introduce a catalyst and it'll it'll just it'll charge it up and it'll just start accepting uh, the ions. Like if it's a, uh, you know, calcium ion, magnesium ion, phosphorus sure. anion, because there's just so many different combinations that it can grab onto. And so it just carbon chelates all of those into solution.
2: Right. And in that situation, then, you know, the total dose of the plant's going to need over the course of its lifetime and the the dissolution rate. So like how fast, that dose falls into solution in in media in the wet media right um are both variables that could change with different like components that you'd use so that's part of the balancing act i'd imagine so one of the uh, cool things about the
3: fertilizer is that it has a higher nutrient use efficiency because of the way that anions disassociate in water from a salt like the let's say DAP, um, the phosphate, to H, the P2O5, and then the uh, NH4 plus, you know, positive and negative, they disassociate in solution. And so they'll react with other things in soils, or the medias because of their highly reactive nature with part with chelated elements, they don't do that. And that's typically why in your base um, hydroponic nutrient, you'll have EDTA chelated, you know, iron, zinc, and and all that is because at a lower pH, like 8. Uh, 5.8 or whatever that phosphate anion will will bind to some of those micronutrients and they'll precipitate out of solution making them unavailable and so you don't get any of those those reactions with the humate fertilizer so you have a higher use efficiency so you can fertigate far less and so we're talking about like field applications let's say for like corn you might have to have 250 pounds of nitrogen per acre so you're going to have to use like urea, it's almost 50% nitrogen, but you'd have to have like what, 520 pounds per acre of just urea. And then you're gonna have to address your phosphorus and your potassium. So you might do right. something like a potassium phosphate, right? And you might have to add another 200 pounds of that with a humate fertilizer, you would only be adding something like 60 kilos total over the course of a 240 day period. So you might fertilize you know, four to six times over the course of that whole entire crop, and you're far less simply because the efficiency and use is higher. And then also carbon-based, that means it's gonna act as a biostimulant, and it'll help create new soils, help with water retention.
2: Sure. That's great well, stuff. I, I, I just want to think we could get into and in yeah, the, the I just wanted to make a suggestion but...
0: before we wrap it up because I'm gonna close it out here and we're coming into the last five minutes, but you mentioned that you had your ratio it was 19, 11 something. Um, and you said if the cup was 10 grams, there was like 30 grams of uh, nutrient added as well. And if it was a little too hot, I think that you could even keep the same ratio, but in that cup do maybe 20 grams or 25 or something like that, reduce the total amount of nutrient in, maybe the ratio is fine, but the dose was the poison, so to speak, because you said it was a little bit hot for a lot of those plants. So maybe if yeah. you just... Kept the same so size we re- cup, I reformulated
3: but... to a formula that sh- that's going to be about four four three and that'll be a more general use
0: okay but I'm my thought is like if it's four four three but you put you know 50 grams in still it could be um even at a lower ratio it's gonna be safer obviously but um the dose yeah. is still important
3: yeah that'd be like a hundred grams, grams that yeah. actually observed into the compost cup will be less because what we'll do is we'll take that same fertilizer but we'll dilute it with water before we apply it and before it's observed into the compost cup
0: okay that makes sense all righty well with that said brandon i'm going to give you the mic first for final thoughts and shout outs for this evening
3: yep uh always a pleasure uh talking to you guys chopping it up like we do um we're going to be doing i'm going to be doing a podcast on the future cannabis project every wednesday it's called lunchbox learning it's just a about 30 to 45 minute kind of uh, interactive deal we're going to be doing and then also if you guys haven't had a chance go check out the new website it's been relaunched and we even uh put some feminized auto flowers on there some uh photo fems and there's some new drops so that's kind of cool and uh, yeah, I'll talk to you guys next weekend.
0: Awesome stuff. Shout out to the inbred limes. I'm uh, stoked for you on that, Brandon. I know projects project's been coming along for a long time. The website looks great. I am still running uh, good with all my Bokashi work stuff, but next time I put it in an order, it's going to you know look even better and, and be easier processed going along. So I'm stoked for you with the update there. And uh, next up, we've got Dr. MJ Coco for final thoughts and shout out.
2: Yeah, guys. I enjoyed the show a lot. I enjoyed being back and, and getting into it. Lots of different fun topics today. Um, check me out at coco We have a wonderful community of growers over there that several of them are uh, happy participants in our, our chat room here every week. Um, I do the Ask Dr. Coco show on Monday nights for my Patreon subscribers. So check me out on Patreon at Doctor MJ Coco. And um, yeah, I run the Dr. MJ Coco YouTube channel and I'll be having a premiere. You know, it's probably not going to be before next Sunday, but coming up pretty soon around then, I'll be doing a premiere. So subscribe to my YouTube channel. I give away the lights that I test during my premiere. So somebody's going to win. And girl love, everyone
0: somebody is going to win. And it's always more fun when it's somebody within our community to get the hookup, but it is hundred uh, percent unbiased. You know, he does the random drawings and things like that, but it's cool to see people growing with those lights that were in the tests. I've seen, I think smart poker has at least one of them and there's uh, many others out there in the community that have them. So. You know, cool who's,
2: who's frequently here is, um, um, Oh, now I can only remember his other name, but it's crack, crack babies who here? we
0: near DWC, we nerd
2: DWC. Yeah. We near DWC is one like three lights. We almost had to cut that guy off. Be like, okay, we'd nerd. If you win and somebody else wins, we're going to give it to the other person instead. But yeah, people definitely have won. Um, so check it out.
0: Consistency pays off for sure. And uh, I guess that leaves myself. My final thought on tonight's show it was a fun one. A lot of different topics. The PED, performance enhancing drug conversation was an interesting one. I definitely don't think it's uh, anywhere close to like anabolic steroids or HGH or any of the traditional, even like blood doping or other types of doping that are out there. But uh, in creative fields, I think like, the best jazz, a lot of the best music. I think a lot of those people would say that they write some of their best stuff or maybe most popular stuff when they're using. And that's not to give cannabis all of the credit. Obviously, a lot of creative people enjoy imbibing some cannabis and having a nice session. Uh, Is the cannabis responsible or is the person or a little bit of both? I think it's a little bit of both, obviously. And a lot of the person, and it's just unlocking some of those potentials, which is one of the beautiful things about this amazing medicine that we enjoy so much. So whether it makes you a better surfer, basketball player, dancer, whatever the hell it is, uh, hopefully you can enjoy it freely. And if you can't, hopefully you can fight for those rights and uh, continue to uh, be free while you do so, because many aren't. And uh, we'll continue that fight, obviously. Shout out to Uncle Rick, who's in the chat. Shout out to the last Prisoner Project stream. If you haven't watched it, go back and support. Uh, try, it if you can, to write some letters. Uh, if you're able to make a donation, it's going on all year. Dutchies matches the uh, donations up to a million dollars. I think they've raised over 600K so far, which means like $1.2 million going to a really amazing organizations. So big ups to them. And uh, that's all I got for this evening. You could find me at Jack Greenstock on Instagram, where I actually don't post anymore because. <laughs> Fuck Instagram and their really shitty terms of service and terrible policies. I have a backup account, which is Jack underscore green stock. But I've started posting all my stuff on X now because they're cannabis friendly. And so if you want to see all my recent grows, you can check out X because I've posted like my last three or four grows there. A whole bunch of Really nice looking flower updates, at least I, I think so. So check me out on xjack underscore greenstock. And if you want to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. And the website's 50strains.com. And with that said, it's the 6 o'clock hour on the West Coast. Go check out Michigan Bros Bro Show and have a great night, everybody. Peace and love.
2: We all love everyone.